Hey guys, Devin here. Uh, real quick before we get into this episode, I just wanted to make a couple quick notes. Obviously, this is the first episode, so it's a little raw. Uh, my first time doing this. There's definitely some room for improvement in this episode. I do believe that there will be some great improvement as the episodes go forward, and I get a little more practice at running this whole podcasting thing. So if this is your first time listening to the show, you know, definitely give it a listen for a few episodes, give it a chance. It will improve. Uh, another thing I just wanted to say real quick. In this episode, you're going to hear me uh, mention quality in regards to a local feed mill in Torrington. Uh, I just want to make it clear that I'm not bad-mouthing that feed mill or saying that they have a bad product. Um, in fact, I'm sure they run a great business. In regards to quality, I'm simply speaking to whether the product is organic or conventional, uh, the lack of chemicals or presence of chemicals that I would like to avoid in my operations. So I just want to make that clear that I'm not talking trash on the local feed mill. Poor choice of words on my part, so I just wanted to take a moment to apologize about that. And with that, we'll get into the show. Do enjoy. Uh, we hope to see you around for the following episodes. Howdy, folks. Farmer Devin here with Wyoming Agriculture Podcast. This is the first episode of the Wyoming Agriculture Podcast, recorded in October of 2020. Now, to start this show, for the first episode, I'd like to give you a little bit of a background on myself, on your host, on why the show got started, and so we'll jump right into that. Now, I was born in Salt Lake City, Utah, spent my younger years in southern Utah before moving up to Cheyenne, Wyoming around the age of 10. From there, I've bounced around various towns in the state, Cheyenne to Lovell, to Cheyenne, to Green River, to Cheyenne, and finally to Casper, being the most current resting place. This puts me at about 16 years in this great state. My interest in agriculture really began with personal studies in high school, spurred on and centered around the permaculture heavyweights to be found on the internet. I spent a few years dreaming up all kinds of wild permaculture possibilities without necessarily accomplishing very many of them before starting my farm business in 2016. In 2016, I founded Cackleberry Farming Garden right here in the Casper area, beginning with pasture-raised chicken raised in the Antelope Hills area about 20 miles north of town. I have since grown the business to include a variety of other products and offerings, but we'll get to that in the meat of the show. I also have a blog that I'll link to in the show notes. I am also a co-founder of what is known as the 307 Vendor Co-op, a voluntary organization including myself and a few other vendors that organized and started a new farmer's market in Bar None this summer. And that, so far, has proven to be a great success. With that, let's take a quick break for our sponsor. This episode brought to you by Cackleberry Farm and Garden, bringing fresh, nutritive foods to the greater Casper area since 2016. Proud to be uncertified, unregulated, and inspected by customers, not by bureaucrats. Find fresh-cut microgreens, grass-fed lamb, and more at cackleberryfg.com. That's cackleberry, C-A-C-K-L-E-B-E-R-R-Y. FG, as in flaminggorge.com. All right, on to the show. 
I suppose it's best to start with what in the world got me started into agriculture in the first place. Of course, it's probably important to start by mentioning my mother's green thumb. That's amazing. Mom has always had that special gift of caring for plants, something she did not pass on to me. Often turning plants from the brink of death back to vibrant life of photosynthesis and soil exploration. As a young man, I enjoyed the fresh produce from Mom's garden, from strawberries and watermelons to hot peppers. Ooh, I remember that story. And I helped fool around with the soil and seeds, too. Years later, when living up in Lovell, we had a wonderful neighbor by the name of Mary Jane. Now, if you live there, it's a small town, so you may know her. Or you may remember the tanning salon that she used to run. Either way, she was an amazing gardener that more than happily shared her abundance with our family next door. And that had some significant impression on my memory of agriculture and gardening as a whole. Now, these things certainly left impressions, as mentioned, but not really enough to change a teen's heart. I was uh, 14 at the time of living in Lovell, and my, uh, my thoughts were the farthest thing from agriculture. Definitely had no desire to become involved. Now, after moving back to Cheyenne for, oh, the second or third time, um, I decided I wanted to learn how to grow things. And... That started off with a little book my grandma gave me by a man you may know, Mel Bartholomew, uh, The Square Foot Gardening Method. That failed pretty miserably down in Cheyenne. Um, you know, I was a little too far away from the house. It was out of sight, out of mind. Mel's mix for soil was far too light for the Cheyenne conditions. Required constant watering that I just couldn't keep up with. The wind would blow some of it away, it would get too hot or too cold, and really it just wasn't very conducive to plant life with only 8 inches of soil and the Wyoming wind and brutal summer sun and, of course, the cold nights. Um, so I turned to Google to figure out what I was doing wrong. And from there I found that more compost and higher organic matter would help with my water retention. So I figured I'd learn how to compost. Definitely couldn't afford to buy it at that point. And that really just turned into a black piece of plastic in the backyard, rotting a bunch of things. And thus began the dreaded reign of Devin the compost Nazi, bothering everyone in the household to make sure that that banana peel went in the compost bin and not in the trash hard thing for most Americans they are used to throwing just about everything away. Now in the meantime, I sought to grow in a way that was not only more effective, but also visibly blended more readily with the surrounding landscape, and wasn't so uh, obvious to the naked eye. So in searching for this, I uh, found Masanabu Fukuoka on YouTube, The One Straw Revolution. Many of you might be familiar with him but this was a eye-opening video for me at the time, and I will definitely link to that video on the show notes. Now, if you don't know anything about Masanabu, uh, he was a Japanese farmer, raised rice and some fruit trees and a few other things, but he did it in such a way that it was very contrary to the way his neighbors were growing at the time. Uh, you see, Masanabu Fukuoka was growing about the time of the Green Revolution, as it was called when chemical agriculture and heavy tillage 
and really agriculture as we see it today was becoming popularized. All of those wartime chemicals were being pushed off onto farmers to be used on their fields. He never had any of that. And right from the get-go, that just really stood out to me as an amazing case study of what can be done with agriculture. By not following the status quo, Masanagu not only had higher yields, he had better crops. And I remember specifically a story when a hurricane was coming through that wiped out many of his, uh, for lack of a better word, competitors' fields. And his plants stayed strong. So that was absolutely impressive. Um, from there, you know, I went down the YouTube rabbit hole and found Sepp Holzer in Austria. And there's a lot to be said about Sepp, from hugoculture beds to, you know, water retention in the landscape and polycultures and, oh, an awful lot, an awful lot. Well, that was a wormhole. And opening that can of worms really brought me into more permaculture stuff. So after learning about Sepp Holster, I, of course, had to learn a little bit more. So I Googled his name, and that led me to permies.com, which is one of the largest, if not the largest, uh, hubs for permaculture nuts on the entire internet. So there's a forum there, and at the time, I just really loved to browse forums. I was browsing through the Permies forum pretty much every chance I got, um, and that led me to Paul Wheaton's podcast. And now, this was really my first intro to podcasts, other than maybe hearing my dad listen to the Tom Wood show and thinking it was yet another talk show. Uh, side note, by the way, I have since become a fan of the Tom Woods show. It's really pretty good, so go give that a listen if you haven't yet. Anyway, um, so Paul Wheaton's podcast, uh, which I'll link to in the show notes, was really all about permaculture and all of the many things that can be done with permaculture. And it really excited me. You know, I'd listened to one episode about rocket mass heaters, another about Sepp Holzer, Hugo culture, polycultures, and really kind of was the audiological backdrop to my hours and hours and endless hours of study as a teenager. Um, through Paul Wheaton, you know, I discovered Jack Spierko, of course, with the Survival Podcast, and that has since become perhaps one of my favorite, if not my favorite, podcast altogether. Of course, at the time, being a teenager, I was really picky about what I listened to, and didn't really find uh, Jack Spierko's podcast to fit the bill at, at that age. So I was mostly listening to Paul Wheaton for probably like 90% of my podcast listening. Uh, in the meantime, I was, of course, browsing through every forum I could possibly find on anything permaculture or agriculture related, from aquaponics forums to uh, gardening forums, chicken forums, permaculture forums, anything I could find. Um, YouTube videos, of course, ebooks. I mean, you name it. I was I was a study holic. I spent hours and hours and hours studying during those years. And there's definitely a few names that have kind of stood out above a, a lot of others that are certainly worth mentioning uh, in the permaculture world and the agriculture world. Have a great influence on what I've decided to do with my farm and my interest in agriculture. Uh, some of those, well, I'll list them off for you, but of course I can't name everyone that's had significant influence. 
There's, of course, Masanabu Fukuoka, as we've mentioned, with the One Straw Revolution, Sepp Holzer, uh, the permaculture farmer in Austria, Bill Mollison and David Hol Holmgren. I would be remiss not to mention them as essentially the founders of permaculture. Um, Bill Mollison's apprentice and now perhaps the main man of permaculture, Jeff Lawton, Joel Salatin, who is perhaps America's most well-known farmer, and Alan Savory, who founded and ran the Holistic Management Institute. Um, from there, you know, regenerative grazing. Definitely worth mentioning Greg Judy. But there are just so, so many more. Uh, so many people that have really devoted their lives and their work to healing the soil and setting a good example for others around them uh, how to participate in agriculture in a way that's not only profitable, but takes care of the land. Um, so anyway, while listening to the Permaculture Podcast over and over and over again, that introduced me to passive income possibilities, uh, which sounded like a great idea at the time. Of course, being 16 and not a great salesman and not knowing a whole heck of a lot about how to do any of this, I, uh, you know, it, I, I found some things, but Nothing's really taken off as of yet. So way back then, I founded the uh, Zazzle store that I'll link to in the show notes, and shortly thereafter, I went and founded a Redbubble store as well. Um, I made my first attempt at becoming an Amazon affiliate about that time, and that failed pretty quick. I didn't drive enough traffic. Um, as life moves me around, and I steadily worked one job after another from you know asphalt to construction to oil-filled jobs, that's what brought me to Casper. None of these things really fulfilled my permaculture desires um, that I knew I wanted to participate in on a daily basis throughout my life. So I maintained a focus on farming activities uh, in my head and growing my skills and my brand, though none of those have really gotten to the point of providing a full-time income. So I still work full-time as a, uh, a server currently a Red Lobster. And that works pretty good. The uh, the hours work well with me, and and then it pays the bills. But of course, the the idea is to eventually make the farm and podcast um, and such pay for itself. So uh, from there, about 2016, I founded Cackleberry Farming Garden, as mentioned before, and that just began with pasture-raised chicken. I had the winter previous uh, read Joel Salatin's books and decided, you know what. It's time that I stop just thinking about this permaculture thing and I make it happen. It doesn't really matter if I want it to be perfect or not. You know, I can't let perfect become the enemy of good. So I started with pasture-raised chicken. Um, in Wyoming, if you live here, you probably know it's very difficult to find anything organic. Uh, so I just started with the conventional broiler feed. Um, sold pretty low at $3 a pound, and I only had like 10 birds I did that year, um, but I definitely lost money on the feed put into the birds versus uh, what I got out of them. So over the next few years, I changed the feed every year trying to find the right fit. I knew I wanted to go to something a little more organic and clean that really met my standards of what I would want to feed to my family. Uh, this is a really hard thing to do in Wyoming. It's quite the challenge. So the next year, I uh, went back to Joel Salatin's book, and I looked at his broiler feed mix, and decided to mix my own. 
that of course is based on corn and soybeans. Those were relatively easy to find around here, though of course soybean meal is all I could get my hands on. So I mixed that um, and decided I was going to try to make a real go of this thing. And I invested some money and I started with two batches of 150 chickens. And that was my worst year I've ever had as a farmer so far. Uh, you know, I just had terrible, terrible mortality. I started with two batches of 150 chicks, as as uh, mentioned. The first batch, I had 11 birds survive to processing. And the second batch, only 35. And there was some other problems with the brooder as well, but these birds, I, you know, they were growing too fast and they were dying of heart attacks left and right. Um, I'd come out to the pens to move them every day and I'd have six to ten of them dead. And it was just a really tough year for the, the pasture-raised broilers. So the next year, I um, decided I was going to replace the corn and soy with something that was a little slower, a little higher quality, not GMO. I, was, I wasn't try, quite trying to achieve organic yet because I knew how difficult of a hurdle that would be in Wyoming. So I ordered in some uh, triticale from Chagrone, Nebraska, which is a couple hours away, and then I replaced the soybean with some whole Austrian winter peas. Um, and that was the following year. The brooder situation had improved uh, even more beyond what the second batch of the year before had. And I had a much, much better survival rate. Um, I had nearly 100%. It was, it had to have been at least 99.5. I think I lost maybe two or three birds at most. Uh, it was a very successful year in terms of survival rate. Uh, that being said, you know, I mean, the birds were absolutely tiny. I had average weights of one and a half to two pounds, and, you know, they just looked like little Cornish game hens almost. I also found that, you know, as great as it was to have that high survival, it just really wasn't feasible for me to spend the time to not only source all of these raw ingredients and have them shipped in from different areas of the country, um, some of them as far away as the East Coast, some of them coming from California, some of them from Texas. Um, it also just wasn't really feasible for me to spend the time every day or every week. I really got to every day by the end of each batch where I was mixing the feed and grinding the peas to get it to a stage where I could feed those chickens um, because I, I just couldn't do a whole as was. I had to had to grind the peas so that it was more digestible and they could actually eat it. So I decided uh, the next year I was going to find a premix feed that would save me some time and hit my standards of quality. And I'd been looking at this brand for a number of years and kind of shying away from it because of price, but I knew that it would absolutely take care of me the way that I wanted it to. So uh, the, the following year, the this last year in 2020, I ordered in Scratch and Peck brand feed from Washington State. Um, if you don't know what that is, I'll link to that in the show notes. That is an organic whole grain based feed uh, designed for raising healthy birds. 
they did all the hard work of figuring out, you know, nutrient levels for this and that and making sure it was a balanced ration. And they mixed it and bagged it and shipped it to me. So all I had to worry about was purchasing that in and opening it and feeding it to the birds as fermented feed as I do. Um, that, of course, comes at quite some cost in Wyoming. Uh, shipping to Wyoming is, is difficult. So to give you a little bit of a comparison, there is a feed mill here in Wyoming. It's down in uh, Torrington. And perhaps there's more. If you know about any, I'd love to hear them about them. But uh, the one in Torrington only deals in conventional feed. And so I could get conventional broiler feed for, I believe it was somewhere between five and $700 a ton. Significantly cheaper. This is, that was actually, you know, it's a good price if only the quality of the feed was up to snuff. So in comparison to that, the uh, scratch and peck feeds coming out of Washington, I spent close to $2,000. Actually, I'm pretty sure it cleared $2,000. It was probably about $2,300 to get a ton of feed shipped here from Washington State. Um, that includes the shipping costs, which are extraordinary, and then, of course, the cost for the organic feed. In comparison, I mean, that is what, about four times the cost of buying feed locally, just to go with something that is the quality I expect. Um, you know, that bared with it its own challenges. So I, I looked over the numbers a little closely this year, and as much as I loved raising pasture-raised chicken, and as much as it's part of the backstory and backdrop of Cackleberry Farm and Garden, I really decided that it's best that I just stay away from it for a while. Um, there's a huge cash outlay for that operation in the spring that really cripples the farm operations for the remainder of the year. And the price point that I have to sell those birds at in order to uh, even attempt to make a money item really makes the sales kind of slow because people are used to buying chicken at Walmart raised by Tyson and other... Uh, corporations of that ilk for a dollar a pound, a few cents a pound, depending on the sale. Well, I was selling these birds at $10 a pound. It's a tough sell to really sell that at any volume. So uh, that enterprise has been dropped for now, and I'm going to be refocusing my efforts on raising the microgreens. I'm hoping to start some mushroom cultivation over the winter. I still am doing the grass-fed lamb uh, and beginning the foundation of my regenerative grazing enterprise with those. Uh, I'm raising Katahdin and Dorper crosses, mostly Katahdin. That's kind of my favorite breed of the two. A little easier to care for. I definitely like a lamb that's not so flighty. Uh, they're easier to move around. And I like the hair sheep because I don't really want to have to deal with the shearing. Also, it makes a very high quality meat product at the end which is something I would stand by when selling to customers uh, on the microgreens I raise sun shoots which are my absolute favorite if you haven't tried those those are amazing they have a floral flavor a little bit of a nutty background and they really freshen up just about anything you put them in I grow uh, pea shoots as well and those uh, are a good leafy green little bit of a sweet flavor to them. Excellent replacement for lettuce. Started growing broccoli microgreens not too long ago. 
And those are a household favorite. Good creamy flavor to them. They almost have a, big, a bit of an eggy flavor that some people pick up. So they go really great in omelets. Um, and those are kind of the, the basis of the farm products at the moment. That's probably what I'll focus on uh, for the foreseeable future. Uh, I'd also like to, over this winter, continue to build my online presence. And my goal, of course, is to become independent of employers. I, I don't mind work. In fact, I could be considered a workaholic. I work a lot. But I'd much rather work on my own projects and my own goals than uh, work for a dollar, if that makes any sense. And on to one of the funnest segments of the show, the farmer's joke of the day. Now, not all of these jokes are going to be corny, but they will all be outstanding in the field. Alright, well, um, there's a few questions that I'd like to ask just about every guest that comes on the show. So as a little trial run, I've decided to ask myself these questions, uh, just as something to give you an idea of what's going on. Alright, so what has been your most successful farming enterprise? And for me, that has definitely been the microgreens. Uh, good return on investment, steady cash flow, easy to start small and scale up or down as the market requires. You know, it's it's been a, definitely been my best um, enterprise. The byproducts of that enterprise are also an excellent resource on the farm, helping me to feed the hens uh, year-round with some fresh greens and some seeds reducing my feed costs and diversifying the diet and giving me some higher quality eggs to feed the family. Uh, what is your main marketing outlet? So for me that has definitely been farmers markets in the area. Um, I started years and years ago with the uh, Food for Thought markets when they were down at the Nicolasian Art Museum on Tuesday nights. Uh, back then I was selling full tables of garden produce and had to sit there all day and not make my my table feedback so it was definitely a little slower um, they've grown quite a bit since then which I'm glad to see um, other than that there's a Saturday morning market down by the Ag building that one's probably the best market in town one of the best in the state I'd say every producer I've ever talked to there does really well it's been one of my best markets I sell out almost every time I go so that, that one's been pretty good. Um, and then, of course, as mentioned before, myself and a few other vendors started a new market this summer in Bar None uh, at Antelope Park. And that is, that's been a fun market to go to. I can't wait to watch that grow. It's had some really good weeks, a couple okay weeks. Uh, we had an amazing Pumpkin Fest event. So that's shaping up to become a really good market uh, for local area producers. And that I will uh, definitely be continuing to sell at in years to come. You know, as one of the co-founders, that would definitely be my my home market, if you will. Uh, what is the biggest challenge on your farm? And for me, that has definitely been finance and time management. Uh, I always feel like there's more work to be done than I have time in the day. And I certainly feel like a little more cash flow would be quite beneficial to helping this farm run. Alright, um, this is kind of a fun one. What is the worst thing the Wyoming wind or weather has thrown at you? So for me, I have this wonderful story. Uh, when I was still raising the chickens out in Antelope Hills, I was out there on a summer day, it was kind of hot, and I 
got done moving the pasture-raised broilers, fed them, watered them, all that good stuff. Went to go take care of my layer chicks that I had in a smaller tractor um, in another field that was, oh, 300 yards away or so. And as I approached that pen and began to look at how those chicks are doing, I uh, see a little dust devil crop up across the, the draw going across the field. Don't really think anything of it. I just figure, okay, well, I'll watch that. And it blows its way across the draw and kind of moves my direction a little bit. And it hits my pasture pen that was sitting unused, uh, my Salatin-style pen that I had built. And as it hits it, you know, I'm thinking, eh, it's just a little dust devil, that's cute. Well, it wasn't quite so little. It picked up this uh, 10 by 12 Salatin-style pen built with cedar wood and aluminum sheeting about 30 feet in the air and it spun it around and separated it into all sorts of pieces and I'm watching it just rise higher and higher and higher from about mm, 75 100 yards away and all of a sudden the dust devil turns and starts to come towards me it freaked me out a little bit so I start to run and then I hear a crash behind me and I turn around and it had picked up the Salatin pen, as I said, about 20 to 30 feet in the air, turned it towards me, and then slammed it back down onto the ground, breaking it into smithereens. Now, this was a mere couple of weeks before I was getting ready to start my next batch of pasture-raised chicken. So I had to take what was once a full Salatin pen that was merely going to be moved to the new farm and completely rebuild it, replacing about 50% of the materials used to build it. And that was pretty wild. Of course, there's an awful lot of stories like that being in Wyoming. If you live here, you know how the wind is. It just wrecks just about everything. Um, but that is my wind story. All right. Um, name one thing you think would benefit Wyoming agriculture the most. For me... Let's get the government out of the supply chain regulation. Wyoming businesses, especially after this great oppression we've gone through in 2020, really need the ability to source Wyoming-grown products straight from the farmer ranch without the government's meddling. If a small business owner or restaurateur wants to serve some fresh-cut microgreens or grass-fed lamb, they should be able to do that as long as they are clear with their customers what they are doing. I just think it's a great travesty that the government is preventing small farmers and small businesses from interacting in a way that would greatly serve the Wyoming community with fresh food and nourishing foods uh, that would really enhance their restaurant experiences. So that's, that's my one thing. Get the government out of agriculture even more. All right, last one. Where can listeners find you? Um, for me, you can find me online at cackleberryfg.com or my blog, which will also be linked to in the show notes. Uh, if you're in the Casper area, you can always call, text, or email me. You can find that information on cackleberryfg.com. And again, just as we said in the sponsorship section segment, uh, that is cackleberry, C-A-C-K-L-E, berry, F-G, as in flaming gorge, dot com. 
And don't forget to support the show. You can do this via direct donation at the website or via PayPal. You can do this by purchasing some of the items in our Zazzle or Redbubble stores. And all of these links will be included in the show notes. So be sure to check out the show notes on wherever you're viewing this podcast. And with that, thank you for listening to the very first pilot episode of the Wyoming Agriculture Podcast. Brought to you by Cackleberry Farm and Garden.